0: mckinley and i'm jenna and this is farming the future a purdue ag week podcast on this week's episode we are discussing controlled environmental agriculture with carrie mitchell mitchell is a horticulture professor at purdue university and since the 1970s professor mitchell has been working with nasa on a variety of projects all right well we're here with um, professor mitchell so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do
1: you bet well i've been at purdue a long time. since 1972, and I've really watched the horticulture department uh, evolve through various uh, phases. And uh, I became involved with NASA around 1976, I suppose. And I've had more or less continuous connections with them up until the present. And um, what what has happened over that long period of time as is that controlled environment agriculture has come of age. And it really got its start with NASA in uh, terms of developing uh, advanced life support systems for humans on the moon or Mars. And how how could they do that? How could they get food and how could they generate oxygen and water? And it turns out that there's a nice natural closed loop between plants and humans. And it occurs on Earth, and so all we're really doing is leveraging that for uh, a space habitat somewhere. And of course, it takes a lot of technology development to be able to do that effectively. It's it's not just a natural ecosystem uh, like it is on Earth. If you're going to do it on a Mars habitat or a spacecraft, It's gonna take a lot of technology to do that. So over over the years, I've been working with NASA on that. And then uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, the uh, earth-based controlled environment agriculture industry began to uh, develop. And it was actually enabled by the development of light-emitting diodes or LEDs to light plants. Uh, In Previous to that, the lighting fixtures that were available to do that job uh, cost way too much energy, and they had a lot of problems associated with them, like excessive heat and very high electrical voltage, and uh, they just took way too much energy. But the advent of LEDs for plant growth really changed all of that and the uh, initial research that was done on leds for plant growth was actually sponsored by nasa so they got that going and then a number of us worked on that and got those systems optimized so now the vertical farming industry exclusively uses leds for lighting plants and Um, It uses a lot less electrical energy to do that than if we had these uh, traditional alternative light sources like high pressure sodium lamps, uh, metal halide, uh, and other types. So that is really the key technology development that made it possible to have earth-based controlled environment agriculture and vertical farming. And that's kind of where we are at today. I won't say that it's a magic bullet because there's still a lot of uh, issues and problems that need uh, to be solved in order to make that industry profitable. But that's a key technology that gave promise for it to occur. And so I was kind of in on the ground floor of a lot of that early work.
2: All right. Wow. Um, and so can you tell us maybe more about some of other exciting advancements that you've experienced in your time while working with NASA?
1: Well, it's all been exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at proving the concept that you can close loops between plants and people to recycle, uh, air, water, and, uh, and things like carbon, and, and, and to to make food, and then process wastes to um, to regenerate the substrates. It's all been pretty exciting. And what it, it's not just limited to controlled environment agriculture. Also, as you're probably aware, there's something called regenerative agriculture, and that's and that's even field based. But you know. A lot of the principles of doing that um, uh, can, can come from closing loops and recycling, you know, wastes, treating waste so that they're not wastes anymore and make them substrates. So for example, um, inedible plant biomass that you can't eat that gets submitted to a waste processing system and it gets broken down. Into carbon dioxide and water, and purified. And if you've got that, then it can recycle back to plants again. That the key is to keep things clean and non-toxic. So there's a lot of uh, waste processing research that goes on, as well as uh, systematics research to uh, to tr- to try to model these things. So Na- NASA has kind of put a lot of us on the back burner recently. Um, funding-wise, but while they're waiting, um, the controlled environment ag industry on earth has been evolving, and it's getting funding from the USDA NIFA, uh, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and we have had funding from the uh, SCRI, or Specialty Crop Research Initiative there, and we work with other uh, scientists at other universities to, uh, to, to do that. And so what we're trying to do right now with, with SCRI NEFA funding is figure out how to make vertical farming and indoor agriculture more sustainable, more profitable, and, and more productive. So we have uh, people at Michigan State, at Arizona, at Ohio State, uh, at Purdue, and then a few other people elsewhere who are helping us. So that's, that's kind of where we are at now. And then I think what's going to happen when we get closer to needing regenerative life support on the moon or on Mars, NASA will start picking up this again, but right now they are benefiting from the research that's being sponsored by USDA. So thank goodness, so it's not it's not just a, a gap and nothing happening. One, one thing government agencies don't grasp well is that it takes a long time uh, to do things and you have to have ongoing research support to get uh, technologies and best practices established so that they can actually be implemented in in person rather than just doing it in the lab and doing proof of concept mm-hmm. but to me it's all been exciting and uh, so we've gone from nasa funding to usda funding right now
0: that's really interesting it's amazing how in a controlled environment there's so many different aspects that you know we don't really consider when we're looking at farming in a large scale right right and so space agriculture in general is um, filled with sure. countless challenges, you know, lack of gravity and tons of others. So, can you walk us through what some of these challenges are and maybe how you guys have been working to overcome them?
1: Sure. Um, well, it's not just light that you have to generate affordably. Mm-hmm. There are five cardinal factors of plant growth, and they are light, temperature, water, nutrients and atmosphere, uh, typically carbon dioxide, but also oxygen. And if any one of those things becomes limiting plant growth, it doesn't matter how good the others are, things will come to a halt. For example, in the early generations of vertical farming, which they called plant factories in <laughs> Japan, um, they noticed that some of the, the early commercial operations Uh, the plants stopped growing. And yet they were giving, they had good temperature control. They had good light. They were giving their plants water and nutrients. They were trying to figure out why their plants weren't growing. And what it was when you close plants up inside a building, like a warehouse, carbon dioxide gets taken up by the plants very quickly and it gets below the level where the plants can actually grow. So that, that became a clue that, well, we've got to bring in CO2 from the outside. Uh, carbon dioxide is actually a trace gas. It, it, plants use it in, in hundreds of parts per million, which is actually not a lot. And, uh, but when they photosynthesize to make sugar and carbohydrate and protein, this is actually going on at larger substrate levels. So it's very easy to draw down the ambient carbon dioxide in a room to become more limiting. And and, and so having high light or the right temperature doesn't substitute for this. So you've got to balance all of these things. And and now the commercial growers actually, they, they do ventilate their warehouses or thermal control and to bring in fresh air, but it's not enough for the CO2. And so they've learned they have to inject pure CO2 gas in, into the air and then circulate it so that that concentration is very uniform in the, uh, in the plant growth area. So that's just one good example of these five cardinal factors of plant growth. And, and then there are other engineering things, too, that if you don't um, take care of them, they can become very limiting and also profit-limiting for commercial operations.
2: Yeah, and so do you think um, this could be more like of a plant genetics problem to solve as well, not just in terms of like the systems and the environment, but making plants more able to absorb these shocks in temperature or oxygen and stuff like that?
1: Well, I I don't know about shocks, I mean you're going to have to keep these cardinal factors out of the limiting range, but I think there's plenty of room for plant breeding and genetics to actually develop um, cultivars and varieties of plants that are all adapted to um, indoor conditions. Um, And what we try to do is keep them out of the stress range, which limits productivity, and try to bring all of these things, these factors together, light, temperature, water, nutrients, CO2, so that none of them is limiting. And when you do that, you can get really high productivity. So they think that when you grow a a crop indoors, on an annual basis, it's 10 times more productive than it would be in the field over the course of the year. And and part of that could be due to the fact that you're able to grow more cropping cycles in the year compared to just one and sometimes two uh, crops in the field. But then when they start stacking these uh, hydroponic systems in racks vertically, they go up to 10 or more racks high, then you have another multiplier effect in the, the vertical farm. And so we think this adds another order of magnitude, another tenfold uh, increase in the annual productivity of the crop. So, so with a stacked vertical farm, you can have a hundredfold more production in a year than you could get in the field. Oh, so that's that's what they're trying to do. But even with that, profitability is fragile. So they're trying to develop best practices. We're trying to help them through uh, the research that we do on this project. And and there's another project out of Georgia that's doing something uh, similar with lighting. So there, there's a lot of work to do. And, and right now, the... The whole, business, the whole industry is not uh, clearly profitable. Of course, you, you get a lot of people going into it, they get really excited, they're entrepreneurs, but they really don't know enough about plant growth and development or growing crops indoors. And so they do something wrong. And through our uh, projects, we try to help educate the, the growers that way. So this is this is what I would call a nascent growth industry. There's uh, there's new businesses, if you will, every month around the country, around the world, actually. And I think probably a minority of them are profitable right right away. They they need to figure out what it is they need to do to be more efficient. And so we're dealing with this aspect of the of the uh, indoor, we I call it the indoor egg uh, industry, because there's there's a number of different versions of it.
0: So as we're looking at the challenge of face, or feeding a growing population, do you see the industry shifting more towards vertical farming and regenerative agriculture rather than our traditional aspects of farming?
1: That, that's a great question. Um, and the reason it's great is that right now, the industry is, best adapted, and has the best chance for um, profitability by growing leafy greens and culinary herbs. Now, these things, uh, these are salad greens, and they are great for vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients that they make. What they're not so great at is making protein and fat and carbohydrate, which, which forms the staple basis of the human Diet. I don't and, and growing things like wheat and corn and uh, soybean and other, you know, row crops, agronomic crops in, indoors is not profitable right now. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's the challenge. I I think vertical farming is going to have a good future with the salad crops and growing them in urban areas, especially because it costs more. To grow them indoors than in the field, mm-hmm. but the uh, the young uh, consumers in urban areas they're very attuned to health and flavor and and well-being, and they will actually pay the price to to buy a lot of these uh, indoor-grown plants. But I think as far as growing the staple crops indoors we're not there yet could could there be technology developments that would allow this to occur sure but r- right now it's the it's the value it's the market value of what you're growing i mean you can grow lettuces and kale and things fairly quickly indoors and they they cycle well but um, they, they cycle quickly, and that helps the, the entrepreneur to be uh, to be more profitable. But you know, the next place they're going are things like fruiting crops, like strawberries and other other berries, and and tomatoes, um, like grape tomatoes and cherry tomatoes. That's, uh, there's exper- there's industry experimentation going on and we're learning from their experiences and their mistakes. but right now those things are probably too expensive to, to, to really to be really sustainable. But in the future, it, it, as we learn how to get those crops to be more productive, uh, it might happen and then and then um, the the staple crops, the uh, the ones that are used for feed and food and protein. Uh, not yet; they're not, they're not profitable yet. Could they be? Yeah, maybe. So, so right now, crops like um, cannabis, uh, including uh, recreational and medical marijuana, that's very profitable. And so, there's a lot of people growing those crops indoors, and uh, and they don't even have to worry right now about. Uh, how efficient they're growing because the crop value is so high. But if you compare a pod of marijuana flour and, and they, the, uh, the uh, active ingredient comes out of the flour, compare that with a wheat head, for example, uh, the, the economic value of a wheat head is just not there. And that's why we need the free sunlight in the field mm-hmm. to grow those crops like that, but you know most most areas that's one time a year, that's one crop, and and some of the uh, fruiting, flowering, fruiting crops that we are producing in controlled environment agriculture like tomato, uh, like cucumber, peppers, some eggplants, they are all being produced in greenhouses, so. Most of your light is free solar, but when you start to get into the winter seasons, the, the photo period and the days get very short and the total light that is available in a greenhouse to grow a crop becomes very limiting. So what they have to do is supplement um, the solar, the, the limiting solar light with, with electric lighting. That has been, um, high-cost, uh, high-pressure sodium lighting in the tomato industry for many years, and they are beginning to transition over to LEDs there, too. But it, but it isn't just LEDs. There's a lot of other things that go into making an indoor crop profitable, and one, one of the main problems is the maturation time. It just takes months to grow a corn crop or a wheat crop, and that that production time inside the vertical farm or the greenhouse is very valuable. It costs a lot. So these are among the challenges. They are economic, but they're also environmental. And we'll see how far we can go. Um, One of the things I've speculated on, if we do have an environmental crisis that is caused by global climate change, and for example, we're not able to grow uh, crops outdoors in certain parts of the country. May, maybe we could go to functional foods crops like, like uh, algae oh. that would be single cell and you could actually immerse them in, in uh, tubes of LEDs and, wow. and then s- circulate that. But then that those cells that would be harvested likely would have to be processed into protein, carbohydrate, uh, lipid. And I, I see that um, maybe being done if we're really getting into a problem with being able to meet our food production needs as time goes forward. So what are we talking about? Nine point six billion people by 2000, you <laughs> know? Yeah. Something like that, and then we, when it was seven billion, we passed the mark of 50 percent of people. Uh, in the world living in cities, being urban dwellers. Well, they think it's gonna be 70% by 2050. And they think that the source of the food production is going to have to be very close to where people live. So uh, so may- maybe with creativity and a little bit of minimal food processing, uh, processing especially if we get into an environmental crisis, that is called by, caused by global climate change. There, there, could, be, um, there could be spin-offs of indoor egg, but right now we're just we're at the culinary herbs and salad greens stage. There's some promise for growing, uh, flowering, fruiting uh, small fruits indoors. It's certainly being done in greenhouses, and maybe it'll be done completely indoors. So we're very early in the evolution of this nascent CEA industry. And the next 30 years is gonna really be telling what, what we can do, And but I don't see field production going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it has to improve also and become regenerative like we were talking about earlier. But, but what if we do have a climate crisis? Yeah then we might have to rely more upon indoor production where we can control all aspects of those five cardinal factors of plant growth. But this costs more. It's not free solar. Even the more efficient LED lights, they cost. There's a cost associated with it. So the the industry is there, it's new. It, It will grow, it will evolve. But it, it'll really be interesting to see where it evolves over the next 30 years.
2: Absolutely, kind of from maybe like a more specialty crop to you know your basics plant. Um,
1: or like, you know, you asked you asked about genetics and and breeding, and if if we can breed specialty crops that will be highly nutritious in terms of. Um, protein that is balanced in terms of good fats and and some complex carbohydrates. Uh, I don't think we necessarily have to fall back on wheat, rice, potato. I mean, it could be a specialty crop, but, and I'm sure people will be thinking about that, breeding them for the future. And then certainly back to Mars and, and the moon, if people are going to be growing food crops for their oxygen and, and to scavenge their CO2, they, they might as well be producing nutritious biomass, right? To, yeah. you know, that. So uh, there's no limit what can be done with breeding, but that's gonna be generations of researchers. Behind me. <laughs>
2: Yeah. It's nice to dream and just kind of think about what we could do with all these different aspects of agriculture.
1: I I try to dream out loud so that people read what I dream and then get them thinking about it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so just to kind of wrap up, this is something that we've started asking everyone who comes on our podcast. What advice do you have for the next generation of agriculturalists?
1: Wow. Um, great question. Um, I think technology is going to be here to stay. Um, I I think we have to look at the three pillars of sustainability in terms of everything we do, the environmental, the economic, and and the, uh, what's the third one? The social. Uh, all of those, as as we t- try to figure out where we're where we're going to do it. For example, one one of the things I'm really interested in is leveraging the energy that is locked up in waste materials, like yeah. food, food waste. And I've I've proposed uh, on sites near vertical farms in the city having anaerobic digesters that could uh, digest food waste and generate um, Methane, which then can be combusted uh, to CO2 and water, and release a lot of energy that could be processed in microturbines into low-voltage direct current. And those could be that electricity could be used directly in the vertical farm to power the LEDs that are that are going to be uh, powering you know the light for the plant growth. So things like this that are not, I mean, we know that technology, but it hasn't been all put together yet. And, you know, landfills too. Right, right now, most of the the world's waste, organic waste, goes to landfills and it gets really wasted. So if we could divert some of those organic wastes from the city, especially food waste and food processing waste, mm-hmm. have it generating. Uh, electricity and CO2. And then if you could purify that CO2, that could go into the vertical farm and maybe we could close it up. It could become more of a closed system rather than a ventilated warehouse. Yeah. So things like this, bringing together aspects of engineering, bioengineering, and, and uh, horticultural uh, controlled environment, plant production, there's no limit. So I think I think it's going to become multidisciplinary in the future, and teams are going to have to work together on all of these things.
2: Yes. I really hope to see, um, you know, all different types of majors, you know, studies come together to solve some of these problems. Me too. Thanks again, Professor Carrie Mitchell. We look forward to seeing everyone on Memorial
0: Mall next week, April 4th through the 8th for Ag Week. Tune in next Wednesday for a new episode of Farming the Future by Purdue Ag Week Task Force.